0: Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode 319 of the Tick Bootcamp Podcast. The title of today's interview is Self Healer, an interview with Jen Sala. My name is Liza Blass.
1: And I'm Matt Sabatello.
0: Today, we interview Jennifer Sala, a 32-year-old herbalist. And I have to tell you, she is a wealth of information. I learned so much from her. Talk about somebody who is empowered, She taught us so much today about what herbs to take if you have MCAS, anxiety, and so many other disorders. Hey, Jen, welcome to the Tick Bootcamp Podcast.
2: Hi, how are you?
0: I'm great. I'm so excited to be talking with you today.
2: Perfect. Me too. Excited to be here. Tell us a little bit
0: about yourself. Where do you live? What do you do? Where'd you grow up?
2: I live in Ellsworth, Maine. I lived here from the time I was, I think, eight up until I was 16. And I lived in Texas for a while. Um, I lived in Oklahoma and then I moved back to Maine eight years ago. Okay. Um,
0: tell us about some of your goals and dreams, you know, when you were growing up and, and your pursuit of these dreams prior before your symptoms.
2: My mom says that when I was a little kid and I kind of remember this, that I always told her I was going to be an archeologist. And Love that. Yeah, so of course, Now I'm like, I don't want to be outside like that all the time. (laughs) And I'm paranoid in a way that I probably don't need to be, but it's, you know, it kind of comes with the territory, I think, for a lot of people. Um, but I ended up not going to college because I had gotten sick my senior year of high school, like I mean, way too sick. I had been sick, I think, since I was maybe like 10 or something, but my senior year of high school, it got really bad and I ended up hospitalized. Um, I went to the emergency room, um, and then, and they were just like, oh, you just pulled a muscle, but it ended up actually being a severe kidney infection that they didn't, (laughs) they didn't know. And they never bothered to tell us that I had cultures in my urine or anything like that. So they just loaded me up with IV, sent me home and never contacted us to tell us that anything came up. So I ended up, um, going to my primary care doctor after my high school graduation And um, I just like my temperature was like 105 and she was like, I can't treat you here. You have to go somewhere else. And by the way, did they not tell you that you had cultures? And it was like, no. And so um, apparently the cultures, we still don't know what they were because I've requested my medical records from then. And they just, they're like, oh, it was a kidney infection. But they they won't say what the infection actually was. But in retrospect, we think it was relapsing fever. which actually during that time in Texas, there was a huge surge of relapsing fever that occurred in the area that I lived in.
0: Tell us a little bit more about these symptoms. So you had a kidney infection that was undiagnosed. Um, but all this time, tell us a little bit more about the symptoms that you were feeling.
2: So the symptoms, it was kind of weird because it started, um, like so early that I guess I just kind of got used to not feeling good um and so it was like by the time like for me to actually be like guys I'm sick it was really bad (laughs) and so I remember I was taking my physics final and like the pain just kept getting worse and worse in my back and like I kind of felt weird but you know like it's stressful when you're graduating and you have all your finals your senior year and all that stuff so I kind of expected to feel you know, not as great as I could have, but it was like I had had something like a cold-ish, but then it was just like getting worse and worse in my back the whole time I was taking this test. You know, it's like an hour and a half or something. And I was supposed to walk to my mom's work and get her car when I got done with my final, but I couldn't. There was just no way. And I just sat on the steps of the school and I called her and was like, I need you to come get me. And so like right there, that told her that something really was wrong. Because I was not like me. Like I walked three miles to school every day. I didn't care. Right. And so for me to say I can't walk, she was like, "Oh God, what happened?" And so, um, she came to pick me up, and we she dropped me off at home. And I had a doctor's appointment later that afternoon. And well, actually, I was going to see um my psychiatrist because I had a history of depression, quote unquote, mm-hmm. and um for a long time. And so the school required. They considered me high risk when we moved to Texas, and they required me to go to a psychiatrist and to be on medications. And so I was taking, I think I took like every anti or um, uh, antidepressant known to man at one point or another. And they never did anything because what I was experiencing wasn't really depression. And so um, I was supposed to go see him for my last appointment, uh, and then I was going to be transferred to an, to adult care. And um, I ended up just. Like I couldn't get out of bed. I went upstairs and I lay down, and I couldn't even like I was in so much pain that I couldn't say that I needed help or that something was wrong. I couldn't get up and just you know go tell her. And so finally, she was like not used to me not being punctual, and so she came upstairs like, "Are you not? What's going on? Like where where are you? Where you need to go?" And so she comes up. She's like, just opens the door, and I was just laying there, and I was like, (laughs) and she was like, "Oh," and so she uh ended up taking me to the emergency room and canceled my appointment. And um, so that was when, you know, they gave me antibiotics. I'm like, oh, well, if you just had a cold, then it's probably because um, you pulled a muscle while you were coughing. And I was like, that just doesn't even really make sense because I had been sick, you know, like a couple of days before that with the cold. And I, at that point, I didn't really have those symptoms. And, um, but they said I was super dehydrated. So they gave me IVs did a urine test, never bothered to call after I went home, but it did like the IVs did help to some extent. Mm -hmm. Um, but you know, like at the point you're like, Oh, well, the pain that I have left is just because I pulled a muscle and, but at the same time, it doesn't sit right. You know, like you're, Mm -hmm. you'll take what they say because you assume that they know better than you do. But then at the same time, you're like, I don't, I'm not sure I believe it, (laughs) but I'll try.
0: Right. Um, So at this time you're in pain. You've gone yeah. to the ER, you're already seeing a psychiatrist who did your psychiatrist ever mention anything about infections, or it was just in the realm of depression.
2: When I was 14, I was diagnosed autoimmune. And that was also oh, okay. the same year that I was diagnosed with depression. And <laughs> yeah. it's interesting. Right. Right. And so, but when they diagnosed me autoimmune, they were like non-specified autoimmune or, you know, undifferentiated autoimmune. They always use some type of phrasing like that. That was like, we're not really going to bother to figure out why we're just going to tell you that you are. And even then it bothered me that I was like, well, what, why, like, (laughs) what is causing that? Wouldn't it help us all to know? And like, how do you know that there's nothing you can do about it if you don't know what's causing it or, you know, sure. Why can't I get better help? and so probably really if anything that was you know where like depression came from was that I wasn't getting the help that I needed um exactly like and I kept saying I was like I'm not depressed like I just don't feel good and but they didn't believe that you could possibly just not feel good they're like well that's what depression is it's like oh that's what being sick is you know what I mean
0: (laughs) I completely understand. I can very, very much relate. So, I mean, here you are young adult, right? Teenager. Mm -hmm. Tell us a little bit more about how things are progressing, where, you know, so you've got the infection, um, depression, how are your symptoms escalating and are they kind of interfering at this time with, you know, your plans for school?
2: Well, they did because I was like, you know, I don't want to go live in a dorm, which most of the universities require that you were going to go live in a dorm. And what I had actually planned to do, because I just didn't want to deal with being around the other kids and, you know, everything that goes along with college that most kids are looking forward to, I was like, no. Um, and so I ended up, uh, trying to go into Peace Corps and, <laughs> and, um, They had at that time just decided that they were going to require a bachelor's degree to go into Peace Corps. So I was like, oh, good. So now I have to go to college before I can even do that. And I just couldn't decide what I wanted to do. I was like, there's no way that I'm going to go live at a university somewhere and deal with all that. And I just kind of, I didn't know what I was going to do, but I knew it wasn't going to be school um just because I didn't have the energy and I didn't have the social capacity to deal with that so I was happy with my job I worked at a boarding kennel, and I was like you know I might get like a vet tech thing at some point or whatever but I was fine with what I was doing Uh, um I could become a groomer because I already worked with groomers and helped out and stuff so I was like you know I could do whatever really um but the funny thing with the relapsing fever was that like when I got that it was like I actually know, I think where I got that because there ended up being a survey that was done a few years later, mm-hmm. and they actually went to this exact tree where my mom has a picture of me and my brother sitting, and they got ticks with relapsing fever out of that tree. So I happened across the case study that this woman had gotten relapsing fever. She was from wow. California. She went to Texas, and it's like I just went to the case study and was like as soon as that tree came up on the screen, I was like, oh my God. And I sent a screenshot of it to my mom. And I was like, you recognize this tree. Like I did, I took out like the little caption on the bottom, all the context. And she was like, yeah, I have a picture of you and your brother sitting in that. And I was like, well, guess what? Wow. That's, yeah, I was like, they definitely had, you know, relapsing fever ticks in that tree. And it was right after I had gotten diagnosed with relapsing fever.
0: Tell us a little bit about your diagnostic journey. When did you get diagnosed? How did you get diagnosed? And I imagine you may have even seen, you know, more doctors before you even got to a diagnosis. So tell us a little bit more about that.
2: So I was hospitalized when I was actually hospitalized for like four days. Um, It was two weeks after the first time I went to the emergency room for kidney pain. It all came back and it was my high school graduation. And I was so unbelievably sick. Like I was just talking to my grandmother about this last night. We were at a restaurant for my graduation dinner. I had gone to the bathroom. I threw up for like 20 minutes straight. And I mean, even during my graduation, it's June in Texas, and we're in an auditorium, and I was freezing cold. I was like curled up on the floor while everybody's getting their cap and gown on and doing their makeup and whatever. And I was just curled up on the floor in a corner, and people kept coming over and checking on me. And I was like, it's fine, whatever. Like, just leave me alone. I will get through this day.
1: <laughs> and then right. we'll
2: take from there. And, um, But even like the people around me were like, you were so hot. And I was like, I'm so cold. (laughs) And like, they could feel the heat coming off of me, but I felt cold. And um, so my graduation dinner, I just like had my head down on the table. I ended up throwing up all night. And, you know, even after there's nothing left to throw up, I was still trying to, and I was coughing, like the whole cold thing had come back and I was in pain again. And so the next day, my mom was like, look, I know you don't want to go to the doctor, but you have to. And so she took me to my primary and the primary is like, no, nope, can't do you here. And by the way, you have culture. So you really need to go to emergency room, go to a different hospital, go to this hospital. And um, that was the one that I went to. They admitted me for four days. They were just going to let me go. And I was like, you have no idea how not okay I am right now. Like, <laughs> it was like, it was evident that they didn't see the severity of the situation. And I couldn't express it because like you just lack the ability to articulate what you're feeling. Sure. You feel that bad. Did and, they
0: run labs? Were they going to let you go based on like normal blood work? Did they run like a, a Western blot test? What did no, they, they do? They
2: didn't do any of that. They did you not. Um, well, they said that I had pneumonia was what they had determined because they did x-rays. And they saw my lungs and that was when they saw my kidneys and they were like, oh, your kidneys are like prunes and that damage is never going to get better. And I was like, really? Like, I mean, I remember seeing my kidneys like just shriveled up and it was because I was so hot and I was so dehydrated and also infected. Um, But like when I got my labs or my records from them recently, a doctor finally, this is when I was 18. (laughs) I just turned 32 yesterday. I finally got a doctor that requested the records and looked over them. And what they had said in their words was a minor urinary tract infection. But when I went to be released from the hospital, the nurse told me that I had irreversible kidney damage, that I would be lucky to live to see 40. And I would definitely be on dialysis by 30. But again, I'm 32 and I'm not on dialysis. I actually feel better than I did then. Thank you. (laughs) Wow. Yeah. But it was like four days and I was laying there and I was in so much pain. Like I could barely sleep. And of course they come and they wake you up every hour to you know, take your temperature and your blood pressure and blah, blah, blah. And I was in so much pain and I kept asking them, they kept trying to put me on Vicodin, but the Vicodin wasn't doing anything. And so I was like, no, whatever you're giving me before, which was dilatin, um, that was the only thing that really could take the pain. And they kept saying, like trying to accuse me of just seeking meds. And it was like the whole time they just disregarded and this was supposed to be the better hospital. And mm they just totally downplayed and disregarded what I was experiencing. I like go from home from the hospital and the IV was just coming out of my arm. Like that, all that fluid just kept draining out of the bandaid. The it was like, like, I don't know if my body just wasn't taking the fluid or, you know, it was very strange. Um, and at that point I just kind of went totally, like I became a different person after that. And my mom knew it. And so I was supposed to have gone to um, my rescheduled appointment with the psych guy to be transferred to adult care. And I went, but like in my heart of hearts, I knew I didn't need to be on antidepressants. They didn't help me. They only made it worse because it frustrated me that I wasn't getting the help that I needed. And no one was listening to me when I said these don't work. Um, And so it was just, you know, it was like a vicious cycle of not being good for my mental health. And so I went to... um, the appointment myself and I drove myself my mom didn't come with me and I walked in and you know he did like an exit questionnaire or whatever with me and then he went to take me to the adult side and I just remember like I couldn't it was like everything was kind of a haze and I wasn't really listening and I wasn't engaged like my brain was so foggy I couldn't even engage in the conversation very well and so I just like I walked in with him and he went to introduce me to the person and I just turned around and walked out. Like, I don't even know what possessed me, but I just turned around, and walked out and went home. And so oh by the gosh. time I got home, they had called my mom and were like, I have no idea what just happened. And so she called the hospital back and was like, she hasn't been right since she got here. I don't know what's going on, but she's like a totally different person. And they were like, well, she's an adult. So there's really nothing we can do unless she decides to turn herself in. And if she wants to come back to us, then we can do an evaluation or whatever. But if she doesn't want to, and she doesn't feel like she needs to, there's nothing we can do about it. And so I ended up moving out of my parents' house like two weeks later, like just like in a tantrum, because I was on bed rest for two weeks. And by the time I was off of bed rest for two weeks, I was like ready to lose my mind. And so I just happened left and I ended up renting like an apartment in somebody's garage and that was that like I, I still get my job and everything but like I just I left I don't know and it was yeah. really weird and then in retrospect you know like all I feel like my reasoning and all that stuff was way out of whack but at that in the moment you don't know that
0: it's- I, I totally understand what you're saying. And that's, that's yeah. one of the questions I have is how, what is the dynamic with your parents at this time? Cause that's a really hard relationship to navigate when you're a teenager or an older teenager or young adult, nobody knows what's happening, especially when you're undiagnosed. So did they kind of let you take the lead there or were they frustrated? What, what was happening in your home at this time?
2: It was fine. I mean, they were worried about me. Okay. And yeah. Cause I was always a really good kid. Like I literally yeah. never went to a single party in high school. Like I was, Oh, well, generally I was like a lone wolf anyway, because I just didn't socialize well, but it was like, you know, I didn't have the capacity for it. Loved animals always was around animals, but like, was I going to sit with the other kids at lunch? Probably not. Right. <laughs> you could go find me in a stairwell somewhere, reading a book, Right. but I wasn't really with the other kids. So it was like, I didn't have a lot of the problems that other kids have we know where I stay out late and I'm blah, blah blah like so for me to not be myself was more of a concern than anything okay and my mom and I actually ended up working together um I she worked for a, a company that had like 12 daycares around Austin and so I went and I applied as um a, a substitute teacher for the daycare and the first substitute job that I had the lady wouldn't let me leave and she was also a co-worker of my mom she was like I don't know why you guys hired her as a substitute she needs to be my co-teacher and so I ended up working with her and working with the babies for years and it was really nice so my mom and I still kept a close relationship because you know we worked together and took care of the babies together and it made her happy and it made love me that. mentally better too yes
0: So tell us how, was there a doctor that you finally went to or a naturopath or, um, what type of practitioner was able to get you the diagnosis that you, that you needed?
2: When I was 29, no, 30, no, I was 29, uh, before I turned 30 by a couple of months, I found a naturopath that I finally was able to get to test me, but that was 12 years later. Yeah. So tell
0: us, fill us in the middle here. What happened? Like what's been happening between the time that you, you know, were working with your mom, um, to the time you finally got diagnosed, what, what were you doing?
2: A lot of it was, I would kind of like come and go through these phases. And so this is one of the reasons that she felt like I needed to be tested for relapsing fever was, you know, I explained the original thing that was like the major incident. Um, but prior, you know, I had been bit by ticks when I was a kid and I had a bullseye when I was like 10 and all that stuff. But like, it was like, I could come and go through different phases, depending, I think more now in retrospect, it was depending on what I was eating, probably like probably in the summer when I could sit in grandma's garden and eat all the sugar snap peas and whatever I wanted to. And it was probably a lot different than, you know, the times when I was living off of ramen noodles. <laughs> um, I think it really came down to nutrition. And probably when I was drinking water a lot, I felt a lot better because I think I get dehydrated really easily. And I just, it's taken me years and years and years to really figure out that that's part of the cycle too. So it's like, you know, like, and it's, it makes it hard because you're like, all these times I like feel really bad. And then these other times I feel better and I can't figure out what the cycles are and so when I would get really sick I would go to the doctors and they would just be like you know I mean I've heard all of the things that they tell people like oh you're just looking for attention you're just you know a hypochondriac you're being overly dramatic you're looking for pills you're looking for this you're looking for that and it's like how do you get away with even saying that especially when I can come to you like I moved back to Maine when I was 23 and I was like, look, um, you know, I was working with people who had, they knew Lyme and they, you know, they had it, their kids had it, whatever. And so that was when I found out that you get the bullseye rash and that gives you, that means, that you know, that you got Lyme. And I was like, oh, I had one of those when I was like 10. And they're like, well, that's why you're 23 and you have the problems that you have. And I was like, really? Like, <laughs> I had no right. idea. And so I went to to the doctor and they were like oh no you're just being paranoid and you're just being this and you're just being that and have you been on antibiotics since then I'm like well yeah I've been on antibiotics in the last you know 13 years and they were like well if you've been on antibiotics at all then you're as good as you're gonna get and I was like who says that to a 23 year old and then the same breath you can tell me that I'm just looking for attention and I have heard it all from all these doctors I probably went to like seven or eight different doctors I mean it was to the point where like when I would go in there and they're like well you're autoimmune what do you expect or something like that and it would just be like you know I would expect more of them than they were willing or able to give me and it ended up being like um they just wouldn't call me back for appointments like I was like I've probably been like blacklisted is that a thing <laughs> <laughs> do doctors do that? <laughs> they just refuse to see patients anymore. It was really strange. Um, were so you I on any? Kind
0: of, I'm sorry to interrupt. Were you on that, any type of medication for these generalized autoimmunes? Like, do, were you on protocols? Yeah. Were you supplementing? Okay.
2: They never gave me any kind of advice for diet. They never gave me any kind of anything. The, I mean, at one point, I had a doctor tell me that I'd never be able to have kids. Like, and just still get nothing from them. And so it was like really baffling to and it like it takes a lot of your faith out of the medical system. Like as a kid, I had already lost it. And I also had bad experiences when I was little, where I was like allergic to the dust and I had a million stuffed animals. And so I ended up going to the hospital one time for breathing treatments. And they were like, Well, um, uh, you know, you had to do some. I think they took blood, maybe. I don't remember what it was, but I or maybe it was to put the respirator on me. But I just remember, like, it took like three nurses to hold me down, and I was like, you know, a couple of years old. I was not very old, maybe like three or four. But it took like multiple nurses to hold me down for them to do what they wanted to do to me. Like, so I've never really had trust. But then, like, as it built, you know, we're like it was becoming more and more evident to me that my lack of trust was not misplaced it just kind of became deeper and so there came a point where i was just like i'm not going to go to the doctor anymore so when i was like 19 i started experimenting with plant medicine because when i left the hospital uh after my high school graduation they had told me drink lots of water um, and eat bananas and don't drink dark sodas was the only advice that i got from them and i was like okay so i know my potassium was low and I knew I was dehydrated and so those were like a few fundamental things that I was able to take and build off. I was like well obviously I can do better than that because first of all you're not going to get rid of me that easily if you think that you're going to give me like totally pathetic treatment and then just tell me that I'm going to die and think I'm actually going to do it because (laughs) I refuse and so I ended up going to um, Google back like before Google was really ripe with information. I got on there and I was like okay so what types of foods have a lot of potassium and so I put a little chart on the side of the refrigerator it was like beans potatoes with the skin on um avocados and all those different things that you can eat that have like pretty much more potassium than bananas do and um of course bananas is on the list but a lot of them do have more potassium than bananas and so it's funny that bananas is like the go-to thing and um and how'd you feel as
0: you started, you know, get, getting more information mm-hmm. and kind of doing this special diet or learning about the foods that are right for you? Did you feel different? Did you, could you tell a yeah. difference?
2: Yeah, I could. And it was funny because, um, I had people tell me they were like, some days, like you look really good. And the next day you just look like you feel awful. And it's so weird. Like, I never know what you're going to look like when I see you. And I'm like, who says that? but I, but it was true. And I could see that in myself. And so that was when I started paying attention to those subtle cues and I'd always had um, eczema. And so I started using like brown sugar and milk and honey and stuff like that, and making skin scrubs for myself. And that cleared up my eczema. And I was like, how weird. And so I started realizing that a lot of it was like chemical sensitivity that I was experiencing where my body just couldn't deal with the extra burden of things. And I was like, well, is that because I already have a burden from something else? Or is that just the autoimmune thing that I have an immune response to chemicals? Um, And over the years, I figured things out. Like I started eating, um, I bought a box of organic strawberries to go camping one time. And I bought a box of regular strawberries. And then I bought a box of organic strawberries shortly after. And it was like the one box with the chemicals on it. I broke out in a rash all the way around my mouth from, you know, I was camping. And so I was just biting the tops off the strawberries (laughs) instead of cutting them off. And so I ended up with this ring all the way around my mouth. And I was like, I just bought strawberries like a couple of weeks ago. And they didn't do that to me. I did the same thing with them then. And then I was like, oh, those were organic. That's weird. And so that kind of planted a seed. And then I ended up getting pet rabbits. And with rabbits, they say you're supposed to only feed them organic greens because Their bodies are super sensitive to the chemicals that are so teeny. And so I started buying organic greens and I started, you know, like making myself a salad out of the rabbit's greens or whatever. And I was like, this is so weird because if I go to a restaurant and I get a salad, it feels like I ate acid. But if I eat one of these salads, I feel totally fine. I don't get any heartburn or anything. And I was like, huh. Yeah. And so when I finally go, you know, years later, like I totally gave up on doctors. I started doing herbalism. Like I really started getting into it and, you know, trying different teas and supplements and tinctures and all kinds of stuff. And, um, just stopped going to the doctor. I just totally gave up. I was like, I can't deal with it. And, um, so when I finally, cause it's like, it was almost like I would get sicker after I went to the doctor, just from the stress of being told that I was crazy. (laughs) Yeah. And so I just kind of gave up and was like, well, I'm going to figure this out my own way because you know, I knew people around the area who had lime and they used herbs for it. And so I had heard that it was a, a viable thing. And I started really looking I was one of those people that like, I was skeptical that plants could do that. Um, because I wasn't, you know, ever really raised that way. My parents, Robitussin and whatever, like,
0: <laughs> yeah. so
2: I ended up lo- researching the science behind it and figuring out how or why that could possibly be a thing. And then the, I built from there. And so like, I started off as a skeptic and that kind of helps me deal with skeptics better because I can, ex- I understand the perspective and I know, um, how to explain it in a way that was like, no, really, I had to get the science to before I believed it. Like, I totally understand. Yeah. And
0: real quick, just for the people that are listening, that might not know what herb- herbalism is or plant medicine. I take herbs. How would you define herbalism?
2: I actually kind of define it broadly because okay. um, I think some people think of it as like, it's only certain types of plants or whatever, but I consider even eating a salad to be some type of herbalism. Like I consider it anything to do with like plant chemistry or nutrients that can help with the healing process. So I kind of go with it like a little more generally than you know, like the conventional sense of people are like, well, you know, there are herbs and there are plant foods, and it's like I don't really see that distinction okay. so much. Um, yeah. So, were you kind of doing
0: this self healing through plants and herbs even before you got to the diagnosis? Yeah. Okay. So tell us. Yeah. Let's let's so let's bring us up to speed on that. How did tell us about that story about finally finding a practitioner who could diagnose you?
2: So it was kind of a weird thing because I went through years and years and years where I was actually managing it really well, but then I would keep having migraines and the migraines wouldn't go away. And, you know, I'd have them for like the entire weekend. And then I would still have one on Monday when I was supposed to go back to work. And they were like, you keep calling out on Mondays. And I'm like, well, I still have a migraine from three days ago. I don't know what to tell you. And so I was like, well, you know, I think I need to do something and I think I had I might have had like heartburn or something too that went along with it that made me think but I started looking into um like parasite cleanses for whatever reason it came up and I was like oh I worked on a horse farm and so it was like (laughs) around all the time and so I was like I don't know if I picked something up from the horses and that's why this keeps happening but um I ended up doing a parasite cleanse but it was a 90-day parasite cleanse so essentially, that would be like stopping your antibiotics too soon, where, you know, it just comes back worse. And so I didn't know or expect that at all. So I was doing, you know, like wormwood and black walnut and uh, pumpkin seeds and all kinds of stuff, the garlic, and um, I just stopped doing it. And again, that was that type of thing where like when it hit me, it happened so fast that I wasn't able to keep up, like, by the time my brain realized something was happening, it was already too late, and I didn't know how to correct myself or get back on track, and so everything was just downhill for a long time, Um, and eventually, I, you know, and I kept doing, um, uh, I think it was a blend of, like, reishi mushroom, uh, lion's mane mushroom, and echinacea, and you always hear stuff about echinacea and people with autoimmune conditions that I didn't really take that seriously. Cause so I'm like, well, I have autoimmune conditions and every time I take it, I feel fine. But at that point, once I started taking it and I had gotten that sick again, and I don't know, like if I ended up getting bit another time, actually, I know I got bit another time towards the end of that. And I was like, it's fine. Cause I'm doing a parasite cleanse, so I don't need to worry about it, but it had bitten me like, and it was just, my loofah happened to snag it. And I, I don't think it had been there that long. so I had just gone for a walk, did the thing where I come back in and take a shower. And because at that point I was paranoid and I suspected that I had Lyme, but I didn't know for sure. And mm-hmm. so I was like, you know, um, because I could never get tested. And so I just kind of went with assumptions. I was like, whatever I'm doing, it works. It helps. I ate a ton of stir fry vegetables all the time I had steak and eggs for breakfast every day I had very specific things that I ate and it was great I had gone gluten-free oh I went to um Reiki because I was injured by a horse and the Reiki practitioner was like supposed to be working on my shoulder and she was like but you just can I just put my hands down here for a minute and she like put over my stomach she's like you have parasites that was what happened
0: oh. parasites
2: and I was like, what? and she's like, I think you have Lyme too. And I was like, I can't test it. So I don't know. And she's like, you have got to stop eating grain. And so I, that was when I stopped eating grain and that made such a difference. But then I kept getting those migraines. And I was like, why am I getting these migraines? Like everything else feels fine. But then I just keep getting these and I can't, I don't know what they're coming from. Nothing helps get rid of them. It was just, it was really frustrating. And so yeah, I did the parasite cleanse and everything was so downhill but then when i started doing the echinacea and reishi after i did the parasite cleanse and started getting sicker again that was when it was like i finally i thought that you know i'd heard about herxheimer and so i thought that i was having a herxheimer reaction and i so i always attributed echinacea to being a good thing and then years later i ended up reading a book um by paul bergner it's like the healing power of echinacea and golden seal um and other tonic herbs it's a great book he actually has a whole series of books like the healing power of books and i highly recommend them if you're interested okay. in herbalism um there's like more of them i think i have them here um and they were really informative they're great they were written like in the 90s but they're still valid and it goes to show that even in the 90s they were doing research yeah. because they did research on echinacea where they actually um you know took people's baseline lymphocytes, their white blood cells, you know, what invites infection in the body. And they, um, they ended up doing it, I think it was like every 12 or 24 hours after they started administering echinacea after that. And they found that for the first 72 hours, these people were taking echinacea, their lymphocytes were higher, but after 72, the lymphocytes went down. And if they continued to take it, they actually ended up lower than they started. So you actually end up reverse, like making yourself less able to fight infection by taking it for too long. So that's what
0: was happening with you.
2: Yeah. And so I was like, it's a Herxheimer. I'm getting better when in reality I was making myself sicker and I was like, oh my God. And so that was (laughs) the first time I figured out that like, and it's funny because the one thing that people say about it isn't the thing that's actually wrong with it? You always hear people ranting. You get into the herbalist community, you always hear people ranting about echinacea and people who have an autoimmune condition. It's like no, it's and I really think and I wondered to myself at that point was like, is it people who have a real autoimmune condition or was it people like me who had Lyme that had been called an autoimmune condition because nobody bothered to figure out what the infection was mm-hmm. or they weren't able to figure out what the infection was because of course we don't know all the infections that are possible even. And so it was like, I really think that it wasn't people who are autoimmune that have that problem, but people who have an underlying infection that they actually get sicker and it's not the body attacking itself, it's the body trying to fight infection.
1: Jen, I'm gonna jump in real quick with a question (laughs) because I, I think this is really fascinating that you're saying people that take something like echinacea too long, they then end up end up if they take it long term worse off than they would be if they didn't take it at all, right? Which, which we, yeah. is is really interesting. But on the other hand, we hear all the time that immune-boosting immune, I'm immune things like echinacea and elderberry and even astragalus, mm-hmm. which is recommended by Stephen Buhner, the herbalist, you know, who's this genius herbalist who, who has a protocol for Lyme disease. They recommend mm-hmm. astragalus after a tick bite. Now, they always say, and you said this, if you have autoimmune tendencies or an autoimmune disease, don't take them because they will they will make your autoimmunity worse. So is it your belief Mm -hmm. that that's not accurate? Because we have had people on this podcast take a strong stance and say, it just simply isn't true. And other people come on and say, it's very true. Avoid these things. If you have autoimmune tendencies because of Lyme disease.
2: Well, here's something funny, um, that I ended up learning about because one of my good friends was a a Chinese medicine practitioner. And so she ended up teaching me a lot about Chinese herbalism uh, over the course of years. Um, and not not even like when anybody knew that I had Lyme or anything, but just because I was interested in it. She was kind of the one who was a catalyst for me to really get into it. And um, she ended up coming across something about Lyme and uh, Chinese medicine. And I guess back in, like, in the 50s, they had kind of given up teaching something that had been taught for 5,000 years, which is Goose syndrome. And now you very rarely will come across anything about Goose syndrome. It's GU. And what that basically, what it literally translates to, like the symbol, uh, translates to demons and snakes. And, um, but when you you learn about that, it's like cancer and autism and ADHD, autoimmune conditions, Lyme disease, epilepsy, all these different things that they have a really hard time curing or treating, um, fall into this category of Goose Syndrome, which basically makes you not who you are. And it affects the mind state and it affects a lot of things. And one of the things I say with Boo syndrome is that you don't wanna take really strong tonics like astragalus because you can actually strengthen the pathogen and not the host. And so that's kind of the theory that I go off of. And I consider this situation with echinacea to be the same type of thing where it is weakening the host and allowing the pathogen to thrive. Um, and I think it really depends on your body and a lot of different factors. Um, but that was my experience. And I've gone by that. And there have been times where, like, if I do start taking the strong tonics, that I just can't deal with it. And um, so I try to go for things that are a little bit more mild, and I've waited up until um I really started to feel better before I decided to start trying astragalus and stuff like that, because it's just it really is strong and it's great. I think if you have a robust immune system and you take astragalus and you don't have a high uh, bacterial load, then it could lead to one result. Or, but then if you're someone like me who like, you know, you had already had a weakened system because I had been sick for a long time as a kid and then I come into a teenager, I get it again, my system was already behind from trying to fight infection for years and years and years. And so I think that was kind of what made it, me more sensitive to it. I that, does that make sense? Does that it answer does. question? <laughs> it does. And I'm just curious.
1: So like, you know, the different yeah. phases of the Lyme healing journey, right? So, mm-hmm. you know, there's some people do what we call prehab, right? Which is sort of like getting ready for treatment. Some, and then you have the, the treatment, which is the kill, kill the bacteria, kill the viruses you picked up, kill all that kind of stuff. And then there's the rehab side of things, right? Sort of like, all right, now I'm going to kind of gradually, you know, come off and try to stabilize. And then what I like to call the maintenance period, right? Once people get into a good place of health. So I think you're arguing that astragalus and these really powerful immune-enhancing herbs and supplements like echinacea, astragalus, and elderberry are useful at various stages. And I think you're arguing that they're probably best served at maybe the maintenance phase. Is, is that what I'm hearing from you? If, if you had to break up the long healing journey into phases for our listeners, where do you think these tools would work best? Maybe in a short term, right? In a short term, little, okay. my immune yeah. system is doing well, let me boost it up and, and hit it in the maintenance phase. And hey, if I do it during the kill phase, it may not be a great idea because I have a ton of pathogens and it's just going to make them flourish even more maybe, okay. right?
2: Echinacea is something that I even after I read the book, I started taking it again, but I started taking it, um, Saturdays and Sundays and then not taking it during the week. So I still kept taking it for those two days because your lymphocytes increased during those two days. But then I let my body deal with, you know, the die off and all of that stuff. And it helped A, keep me from getting toxic from Herxheimer. but it also helped to strengthen my immune system in intervals that was you know, manageable for my body and didn't set me back at all. So it actually using it in that sense is what I suggest to people. Like, yeah, I do think you should use echinacea because it's very powerful and it's great, but you need to use it short term. Like, my boss's husband got COVID and she was like, it's fine. I've been drinking my echinacea tea. And I was like, whoa, how long? <laughs> Whatever you do, two days, that's it, maybe three, but don't go beyond that. And she didn't, and she was okay. But, um, it's, uh, elderberry is one of those things that I think if you find a tick on you take elderberry, once you start having the inflammatory symptoms, you switch to elderflower. Um, so if you have like, if, even if you get sick in general, people like to take elderberry, like that's what you need once you're running a fever, but really once you're running a fever, you need elderflower. So it's just one of those common misconceptions. Like, you know, if your kids are sick and you don't want to get sick then you do your elderberry. It's more of a prophylactic or an early type thing. But once you're symptomatic, then it's not what you need. You need something different. And what was the other one you asked about?
1: Well, that was the astragalus.
2: Oh, astragalus. Yeah. So astragalus is something that um, like, I would recommend taking it during tick season for sure to keep your body robust. If, and you know, if you've gotten bitten and you're not inflammatory yet, then your bacterial load is low enough. But if you're somebody who is like active, particularly chronic, I wouldn't take it. I generally warn against it unless it's somebody who is robust and just wants something again that's prophylactic. Or once you get into that phase, um, like I've come into in the last like year or so, where I feel like I'm not chronically ill. Um, I feel like I'm chronically healing. <laughs> um, and I'm in a much better place. And my doctor's like, I don't even know how there was ever anything wrong with you because your age, you're not on any medications. And all of finally, for the first time ever, I mean, like when I was 10, they wanted to put me on cholesterol medication for the first time ever. my All of my labs came back absolutely perfect um, just recently. So like now I'm like, okay, well, now that I hear that, I'm happy to take the astragalus. But until I was at that point where I could confidently say that my body wasn't struggling, then I. Kind of wanted to avoid it just because I didn't trust that my load wasn't too high where it was going to tip the scales in the wrong direction.
0: I'm curious, John, since you had this robust background in herbs and herbalism and your self healing, by the time you did get a diagnosis, did you just go right to herbs? Did you build your own yeah. protocol? Tell us a little bit about that.
2: So um, when I actually got my diagnosis. I was unbelievably sick. And it was like, I really thought I was going to die. And there was just no way I couldn't not get help from a doctor. Like I was able to get myself to a place where it was like, Oh, and what I had done was I had started eating gluten again, just out of convenience. And that was bad. (laughs) It was so bad. And it took me a long time to get over all the inflammation and everything that had happened. So I went, um, online. And I was like, you know, Lyme is a thing around here. Surely there's somebody who deals with these people. I don't know who it is, but I have to find them because I need help. I know this is what it is. At that point, I was totally convinced. And so, um, I finally found a naturopath in the area and she was like walking distance from where I lived. I was like, seriously,
0: (laughs) you (laughs) just found her online or you found her through friends.
2: I found her on Google. Okay. Um, Yep. Uh, and so I went to go see her and I mean, you know, I walk in and like, I could barely form a sentence. Normally you go into the doctor and you can barely form a sentence and they immediately write you off. And, um, she didn't do that. She had had Lyme and she had had, um, mycotoxin problems and whatever. And so she had firsthand been there and understood, and she was a naturopath, which really helped. So, um, she became a naturopath because of that. And so um, when I went to see her, she had no problem testing me for anything. I didn't have insurance, but this was during lockdown and COVID. And I think the other thing that kind of tipped me too far in that direction was like a lot of people, I was used to, you know, alarm goes off in the morning, you get up, you get going and you just got to get to work. You just got to do your thing. And then you come home and you got to deal with the house and you got to whatever. And it was like, I was stuck in fight or flight for so long that like, I didn't have a chance to be sick. And then right. once lockdown happened and I was just out <laughs> for all that time. Like everything really caught up with me and I was like, wow. And so I ended up, um,
0: how did just, you get tested? Did you take, did you do labs or muscle testing? What did the naturopath um, do?
2: She did blood tests. Okay. And she sent them, I think it was great. Is it great lakes or great Plains? Like that. Great Plains. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I did the Great Plains test and that came back mostly the thing that I had the most alarming amount of in my system from what she could tell was the relapsing fever. And she's like, that is exactly what you described to me as what happened to you when you were 18 is exactly what that is. She's like, but normally like, you know, people get a few different flares and then it goes away on its own. So if it's still with you after all these years, and you can actually think back to what the cycle was where I was like, no, I did get sick like every April and every October, basically every year I would get sick. And, you know, I was never like a kid that really got sick per se like that. And so it was like kind of a weird thing. And she's like, I think that's exactly what that is. And so um, she had me, uh, first is she did the mycotoxin test and I was probably loaded. Um, and then she went, cause it's Maine and it's humid and everything is moldy all the time. Sure. <laughs> um, so she had me do the mold test first and then she had me do blood labs. And I think all in all between appointments and labs and all the different things and, you know, prescriptions, I ended up spending like $4,000 or something out of, but it was like the, you know, the federal relief money where you're getting like $800 a week that I was not used to having. And so I was able to actually pay for all of that out of pocket. And, um, the test, like when it came back and I know it's normal to have like some little bit of level exposure to different things, but it was like, I literally had some exposure to absolutely everything on that test. And it was like, every time it was like 26 different tests and I had some level of everything. And I was like, I mean, I'm a magnet like they, and they do, they love me. Ticks love me um and it was so funny and it, so she was like the Lyme not even nearly as worried about it as I am with the relapsing fever because you're 10% more likely to die from chronic relapsing fever than you are Lyme and it's because of the cytokine storms and that like it just creates such fever and uh, you get severely dehydrated and you're so hot and the cytokine reactions are just so insane that it's dangerous and um that was what I was experiencing. I think at that time too, was like just the, the cytokine storms yeah. that was just too much. Mm-hmm. And,
0: um, what was, let me ask you this. What was your feeling yeah. when you finally got the diagnosis and all of these co-infections? How did, how did you feel?
2: I was mad. I mean, it was good to know. And I started the antibiotics, which was a total, like, she gave me a tetracycline, like, I think it was like a gram a gram twice a day, I think, because it was half a gram four times a day, um, but I was mad because all those years, and, like, mm. I had been hospitalized and all these things, and then I go to find out, like, once I start really looking into things more, like, I'd never heard of relapsing fever, and so once I started looking into that, and I find, like, are you serious? I actually got this in Texas in the middle of a surge where people were getting this in Texas in the area where I lived, and just nobody <laughs> like where have you right. people been? And so I think it was a lot of resentment and a lot of, like, it was just so negligent and so disheartening. It, it was hard with the medical community to like, for me to really want to go back to even like ever go back to a doctor. Now I'm like, how can I even trust you? Right. Because
0: understandably. So hard. Yeah. So she, her, so her treatment plan for you was antibiotics antibiotics with herbs.
2: She, once we talked, she felt like I knew what I was doing enough with the herbs that I could handle that for the most part. So what she actually did was before, um, when she sent out my blood labs, she gave me and she actually had it. Um, but you know, like things expire, they only have a shelf life of like a year, but they're still good. Um, but legally she can't sell them. She can give them away, but she can't sell them. And so she had mitochondrial optimizer and it's like $75 a bottle. It's called the one, um, I think it's from Quicksilver scientific. It's amazing. It is so good. And so she gave that to me, like as a buffer before we started, like, you know, before we got any of the labs back, before she gave me antibiotics, she kind of like phase one. Yeah. Yeah. So she put me on mitochondrial optimizers, um, gave me some, you know, suggestions, things that I should do. But she was like, I think you really like you have an ability to listen to your body that most people don't have, and you have knowledge that most people don't have. So I think you're okay if we can just get you over this hump. And um and I explained, you know, and she's like, you're not alone on that. Like you just didn't know that it was that bad and it wasn't it didn't catch up with you until it all just came crashing down. And she's like a lot of people have been going through that and it's not your fault. It's fine. So What I also realized was, and she kind of pointed this out to me too, was like, I didn't realize how little I ate. Like, I just wasn't hungry. And so, you know, when you're not hungry, you don't think to eat. And so now in retrospect, I'm like, it was horrifying how little I was eating for that time. Like I could get like a little bag of plantain chips and it would last me all week. Now I could mouth those down in 20 minutes and want something else. But it was like, just in the nervous system where like all those like, things that are normally regulated pretty consistently just were totally out of whack. Mm -hmm. And I didn't, it didn't occur to me, I didn't know. And then I'm like, looking back, and I'm like, I might have been lucky to get 500 calories in a day. And that's just not enough. And it's no wonder my body was struggling. And it was running on adrenaline all the time to get through because there was no food. And it's just, it's crazy to think about how the way that it hijacks your mind and you don't see it. And that's the thing that bothers me with people who say that it's all in your head because kind of in a way there's, you know, psychoneuroimmunology. And so a lot of times there's like a parallel between your level of stress and, you know, your mental health and your immune system, like they are interwoven, but it's, just so different when you have, um, something that takes your mind and then like the demons and snakes, like they say in Chinese medicine, demons and snakes, it's like, that actually makes so much sense. First of all, if you've seen Aspire, a spire, key kind of looks like a snake and the way it does just change your mind and blind you to things that are so obvious, like, you know, like, yeah, you don't have any energy, go eat something,
0: <laughs> right? Like,
2: but it blinds you to even like, you don't even think food. And it's really strange. Like it's almost like your will to survive becomes compromised.
0: It's a different kind of survival that's happening in your mind. I completely understand. So at what point did you start making these connections? So there must've been a point in your treatment where you could see like, gosh, I'm not eating. Um, you know, where was, where was this, was there a point where, things started shifting, um, in your treatment that you did see these types of improvements.
2: Yeah. It was like, after I did the tetracycline, um, okay. So this is a fun, interesting story (laughs) to talk about TMI. Um,
0: so let's hear it.
2: (laughs) So I got maybe like a week into the tetracycline. I think I only did like 10 days, but it was one of the last days I was on it. I was just like, I feel like I need to pee, but I don't need to pee. It was really weird, but like, again, I listened to my body. So I was like, okay, well, I'm going to go see what fresh hell this is. (laughs) So I go sit there and like, wait to pee. And all of a sudden my ears start ringing and like everything in my vision gets fuzzy. And it felt like I could just feel like, you know, in the back, like where you start to get a tension headache, the back cervical nodes, the lymph nodes in the back of your neck, it was like, just pain but it was like ice cold but it felt like acid like it was burning but cold at the same time it was so weird and I was just like what is it and I could feel it start to go down my spinal cord and then like as it hits the water it fizzles and of course so I have to look in the toilet when I'm done and it was like it but it came out like diarrhea to be frank but it like it fizzled when it hit the water and all this stuff was happening. And I was like, what is that? And so I look and I mean, it was just green and it was frothy. Like it was pure infection that came out Wow. <laughs> and it was just like, I have not felt as bad since then. Like it, it was like, it hurt it for like, but it didn't really hurt. Like it felt good, but it didn't feel right. Like it was so weird. And it, but it helped. Whatever happened, like it so. Just after like, that,
0: you felt yeah. different.
2: Yeah, yeah. Wow. <laughs> okay. So apparently, there was some serious biofilm busting that needed to happen. I'm like, if you consider, and I had said for years, I was like, something's in my head. Like, something is eating my brain because, like, I could hear it and I could feel it. Like there was like that constant, like just a weird. And she's like, that's encephalitis. Like you have fluid in your brain. And so then I started thinking about it. it's like, well, you know, like I had basically like early onset Alzheimer's type stuff, like where, you know, I'm 25 years old, but I go to make a pot of coffee and I forget to put the carafe in. And then I get out of the shower and I come into the kitchen and there's coffee all over the place. And I'm like, who are you? <laughs> like, <Yeah. laughs> there was one time I actually started the tea. I couldn't decide if I wanted a cup of tea before I went to the store or before I got home. So I set the cup. Apparently, I started the pot and I put the dog up, went to the store. After I started the water, I pull in and I can hear the dog from the driveway. I can hear the dog inside the house howling and I can hear the tea kettle going off. I had been gone for like a half an hour and it almost boiled all the water out. And I'm like, lucky I don't burn my house down. Like, (laughs) And those are the things that like you should think something's not right because I do these things, but Mm -hmm. it doesn't occur to you. Right. Like, it's just, it's so clueless. And so like, once I started realizing those types of things, I became better able to pay attention to them. Like once I realized, okay, no, there's really something that happens in my head. And I really have to be mindful of the subtle signs that there's something going wrong and pay better attention to that. Like, I really have to take that seriously. Got it. it It took peeing that infection for me to actually realize that. I don't know if that's something that like anybody else has ever had happen and they just don't want to talk about it
0: (laughs) I think that would be called the big shift
2: (laughs) yeah
0: yeah okay
2: and then I learned about goose syndrome shortly after that and started you know thinking about it like in a more abstract sense that way like okay so that's definitely um like it it just it makes so much sense like when you think about it from like five thousand years ago how would they have interpreted something like that it's like you're possessed there's something that's keeping you from being your best self what is it obviously a demon and so that's just like you know in our sense our translation that sounds like something that's totally absurd they didn't have a microscope they didn't know what bacteria they didn't know about bacteria and yet they did and it's just and of course, like once I actually started thinking about it in the sense that they talk about it and doing the things that they say, such as, you know, be careful with tonic herbs and all that stuff, it really did help, um, to think about it more in that type of abstract way, which I could I of wish people would more.
1: Um, Jen, I want to jump in and ask you a question here because a lot of people listening to this podcast want to learn from, I'll call them our mistakes, but also the things we had to grow through and learn through, right? Because I think the three of us on this podcast, we've all had to learn the hard way about certain things in our Lyme journey. Now, looking back, you've studied herbalism for almost a decade. You were dabbling in using herbalism to treat Lyme before you even knew you had Lyme because you suspected Lyme disease. But you were kind of, you said you did a parasite cleanse, but you didn't do it long enough. So it didn't really work as well as it could have, right? You were doing things like mushrooms to help with your immune system. You were doing probably other herbs to help from an antimicrobial standpoint. But looking back, now knowing what you know today with your knowledge of herbalism, tick-borne illnesses and Lyme disease and the breadth of infection that you get with these, you mentioned you had 26 things that were indicated you know, possibly positive for you, right? from a t- From a tick bite. What would you do differently? So, you know, what kind of herbs would you use and what protocol would you use to address not only relapse and fever, not only Lyme, but I think you had mycoplasma, maybe some, you know, mold susceptibility and all these other things you had going on in your body that led you to this chronic illness state that you were in. Um,
2: One of the things that, again, I learned from Paul, okay, so what I would have done is I would have bought all of Paul Bergner's books and taken all of his classes from the beginning. He does It's on um, Herb Rally podcast The Paul Bergner does um, a whole thing about chronic infections and biofilms. And it's like a three hour lecture that he gave. I think it was nursing students Mm -hmm. and or nurses, maybe they sounded like they were probably older than students, Um, but it was amazing. And so listening to that helped me yellows anything that's yellow and i mean not necessarily anything um like buttercups aren't really great herbal medicine generally i don't think it's not something you hear reputed but um like goldenrod which people often confuse with ragweed because they come up at the same time and they grow in the same area but they are not the same plant and the goldenrod isn't what's responsible for your allergies that's amazing stuff first thing in the spring at least where i live we have forsythia come out a lot of times there'll still be snow on the ground and these yellow flowers bloom before the leaves even come out on the plants those are amazing I actually have one down the road there's an abandoned house and I go out there because that thing is probably 200 years old it's a beautiful bush and I'll take the like even just as I walk by if I'm headed you know to the store or whatever as I walk by I'll pluck off a flower and eat it um chamomile is also yellow turmeric a lot of the things that we hear about being good for us in the lime journey, end up being yellow. Ginger is another one. Um, it's a berberine is just great for killing stuff and supporting the immune system. And they have tons of nutrients and they're often bitter. Um, and so that's really one of the big things that I wish I had known earlier is if it's yellow, eat it.
1: <laughs> but, but Jen, you are a super smart, super knowledgeable person about herbs you know, John Doe listening to this podcast is not going to go rip something off a bush while he's taking a walk and eat it, right? (laughs) So, I mean, God bless you. I'm so happy. And really, I'm glad that you know that that's really powerful that you've learned that. But I guess what I'm, I want to reframe the question. For the average listener who isn't an herbalist trained like you are, is there a particular protocol or a blend that you'd recommend to treat chronic Lyme disease including all the things that come along with it, right? Other viruses, other co-infections, you know, what would you recommend to those people listening? And even for yourself with what you were suffering with, that can be more of a shortcut. You can go and even buy, okay, you can go here and buy these couple of bottles. And these are herbs that are really, really good for your immune system, antimicrobial, your nervous system, right? You know, all all the different things that you feel are important to heal and overcome chronic Lyme disease. So the thing with
2: herbalism that kind of makes it complicated. It's funny because, you know, like people, you know, find me on LinkedIn or whatever, and they're like, oh, you're a health coach. Can I get, you know, your advice? And so like, they'll send me an email or they'll send me a message and they just want like a straight answer. Like that. It's like, well, that's, I have an intake form. And if you want to fill out my intake form, then I can help you from there because it's so different to everybody. Um, There's just no way to not be wrong if you don't ask enough and the right questions. So, um, that's generally what I tell people is like, if you really want what I would recommend that I consider generally safe for most people, um, I do, um, chamomile. Most people are not allergic. I actually just met my first person who's allergic to chamomile earlier this week. Um, and, I don't know what she said. It's like, you know, she just started having this. She's like, it's funny. It's after every time I drink chamomile. Um, it's rare, but it can be a thing. Um, and people didn't. I drink chamomile four times a day at one point. I was having major liver problems. And so I did milk thistle and I drank four cups of chamomile every day. And I made sure that I got, you know, 10 or 12 hours of sleep and I could drink chamomile during the day and it didn't make me sleepy. Um, so if you get enough sleep, it won't make you sleepy during the day. But if you drink chamomile and you get sleepy, you need to sleep more is the general rule that I, so I'm like, you know what, give it a try at a time when you can take a nap afterwards if you need to. And that will tell you, A, if you're getting enough sleep to support your body for what it needs and B, um, you know, if you have any type of hay fever or whatever reaction to it, then you're not asleep when it happens and you'll know uh, if you're allergic to it or not. So generally, yeah, I just tell people, you know, two o'clock on a Sunday afternoon, try chamomile and see what happens. Um, lemon balm is great too. It's fairly safe for most people. Um, the thing that I get because I love frankincense and myrrh, but it's so expensive, like ridiculously expensive. If you want to get, you know, if you get bulk, even it's still expensive, um, which I buy most of my herbs bulk and I can either encapsulate them myself. Or I just make a tea or I use them cooking or whatever. Um, and it's cheaper. It's a lot cheaper if you find a bulk distributor like Mountain Rose Herbs over trying to buy capsules at the store. Um, and that's why I just tell people drink tea. Like you're going to drink something anyway, it might as well be tea. Um, so, what I call the poor man's frankincense and myrrh is powder, argo, and calamus. And um, I can buy, you know, where it would be $50 for the frankincense and myrrh. I can get $12 from powder arco and calamus and powder arco is a pink trumpet tree. It grows in the South America. Um, it's a really beautiful flowering tree and it smells, it's, I don't want to say it's licorice because I despise licorice, but it's, it's got a little bit of a licorice undertone, but it's not impalatable, you know, <laughs> like licorice tends to be for most people. Um, and it's, it's so much cheaper and it's really good. Like in hot chocolate, you can put, um, powder, powder, and calamus, hot chocolate. If you want a medicine for everybody, it's hot chocolate <laughs> because it, there's serotonin that comes with you drinking chocolate. Um, it just makes you feel good and you can't not be happy when you're drinking hot chocolate and you can fairly easily hide herbs in hot chocolate too. Um, TESOL is something that towards the end of my journey, I finally tried um, and it's supposed to, you know, send the infection out into the bloodstream. So once I got to a point where I was like, no, I don't think I have a lot that's active, it's probably more dormant, that's what I went to. And um, again, it's something that I wouldn't take all the time and I would take it before I drank the powder and calamus because powder and calamus kill everything. And so, you know, you give like 30 minutes after you take the T-cell just to let it kind of build up and kick stuff out loose into the bloodstream. And then you take the powder arco and calamus to kill it in the bloodstream. And that was kind of how I started working out the deeper layers of infection. I also lived off of garlic, probably <laughs> like if you have a recipe for gar- with garlic in it, I would do like two or three times what the recipe said for garlic. Um,
1: I would eat that's raw garlic, good. so I'm with you on that one, Jen. I would go to, I would literally go to work, eat raw garlic the night before, and I didn't smell it on me. But everybody, I'd be around like Matt, it's coming off your skin, like that's how bad it was. I would have my my colleagues be like, you need to stop eating garlic. Like they would like, I'd move my arm and they would smell it from my arm, and I'm like, is it bo? They're like, no, it's garlic. <laughs> I had
2: that happen too. Like you smell like a pizza, like. <laughs>
1: But, you know, understanding that, you know, and thank you for describing in detail a lot of things you did to treat Lyme and co-infections, but I just want to, I want to hone in on one particular issue because it makes me think of when we interviewed Kelly Flanagan, she was able to overcome a lot of her Lyme-related symptoms, but the one persistent was, were her allergies, right? She was still allergic to the world and she was really struggling with that. We hear that often, whether you, you know, whether you call it MCAS or just, I have really bad allergies. What are some herbs you can recommend to people listening that will help them either a while treating or b even if they're just persistent things after treatment, manage sensitivities to anything, right? Whether whether it's environmental allergies, or, you know, you smell a perfume, and you get an instant migraine, things like that, we hear a lot on this podcast. I'm curious what your thoughts are regarding herbs that can assist in helping people with that particular symptom.
2: So to be fair, I still cannot walk through the detergent aisle at the grocery store. Um, I don't use any kind of aggressive chemical cleaners anyway and it's like you know at this point like I'm so entrenched in like the plant world that I'm like I don't need to and really I don't I don't find any need for the industrial chemicals a lot of times you can clean stuff just fine with baking soda and vinegar with essential oils um so what I do for my allergies um is and what I would recommend to anyone anyway I mean whether or not you're chronic with Lyme or after the fact is thorny things First of all, um, like motherwort or roses, hawthorn. um, So you can basically figure out like what thorny plants are. Um, Another one that I, uh, it's going to totally leave my mind now, uh, tribulus. It actually like almost looks like the little coronavirus. (laughs) What It looks like. Um, uh, So those types of things help to make you less sensitive. Like they help you to kind of put your thorny armor on and um, be more protected from the influence of things like that. It, which sounds like really esoteric and weird, but those are the types of chemical properties that create in the genetics and the plant that create those attributes. You've just consumed them. And so on some level, they're changing the chemistry in your body, right? Does that make sense? And not get too woo woo? <laughs> um, so it's called the doctrine of signatures actually. And so it tells you, just visual cues from seeing a plant, what it can do for you as far as medicine goes. So you'll see some things that um, they look like eyes, like carrots and olives we know are good for your eyes and they look like eyes, right? If you look at like a carrot slice, it looks like it has a little eyeball in there. Um, The same thing with olives or walnuts are good for the brain and they look just like a brain. Beans are good for your kidneys and they look like your kidneys. So if you think about those things, like I'm sure at this point, people have a pretty good idea in their journey, like what their weaknesses are. So you want to find those types of things and consume them. First of all, the thing that I really think the world needs, and this is kind of goes back, you know, like hundred, depending on where you live, hundred, 150, 200 years ago, people ate stinging nettle all the time. <laughs> I mean, all the time. It was in soups. Constantly, I mean, you can even eat it as a salad if you're brave. It does sting if you harvest it, but when you get the dry stuff, it doesn't sting that property. If you get really good quality stuff, it might make your fingers tingle a little bit if you touch it, but it doesn't have that actual stinging property. What they use nettles for, interestingly enough, and people in the lime community are familiar with arthritis and rheumatism, that's what they use the fresh plant for. There's a process called urication where they cut down the fresh nettle and you'd like slap somebody with it or you can touch it yourself or what you know, if you have rheumatic hands, you can actually touch the plant and those the stinging creates an inflammatory response that actually helps to uh, soothe or heal the rheumatism. So when you consume it internally, um, even though it's dried out and it doesn't have quite the same stinging properties, it does have that kind of thorny aspect to it that's protected. It kind of keeps stuff away from eating it and allows it to proliferate. And so, in its own way, it helps to keep the world from eating you or your infection from eating you and allows you to thrive. Um, but it is so unbelievably rich in nutrients that. I mean, you can take it and if you make a cup of it and you let it sit for like four hours or overnight or whatever, it will actually turn black from all of the nutrients and all of the stuff that gets extracted from the plant in a tea. So what I did for a long time was um, I would make my tea at night before I went to bed. And then if I wanted to, if it was cold out, I could heat it up in the morning and drink it warm, strain it out or whatever. But a lot of times I would just take like a giant, like 40 ounce jar. They called me pickles at work because I would bring a jar of tea in like a 40 ounce mason jar and it, uh, you know, it would turn dark, different colors and it almost looked like pickle juice or something when I bring it to work. Um, and it was just dark, rich extracted tea from overnight and the stinging nettle. It has so much, um, magnesium and a lot of stuff chlorophyll is a lot of what turns it dark is the minerals and chlorophyll but the interesting thing is it actually has histamine so when your body produces histamine too much you can have histamine you can consume histamine and your body doesn't feel the need to produce too much if that makes sense so um if you're If you drink the nettles and you have to have it cold extracted to get the quercetin out of it but it it will extract quercetin but people will make the mistake of drinking nettle tea thinking that it will help their allergies but they drink it hot they only extract it for 15 minutes and then they wonder why they don't get the results and that's why so nettles is actually really great if you extract it for hours and you can heat it back up if you want to but you really want it to get good and dark and that's going to give you it's basically like taking a multivitamin or two (laughs) and um, pretty much has everything that you could need. in it. And I think that to get your nutrition up and to help your body support and to not be so sensitive and not produce so much histamine in response to things that it considers a threat, then nettles covers all your bases for that.
1: My final question. And I know I've, I've been asking a lot, but you're giving us such great advice. My final question before Liza talks to you about, you know, where you are today and everything you've done. I want to ask you about people with anxiety in the Lyme community, because we know that tick-borne illnesses oftentimes bring on anxiety and depression, and it can make it really, really crippling for people. So what herbs do you recommend for people that are really struggling with their mental health while treating Lyme disease that can help them with anxiety and depression? Because I mean, I have to say, it's probably the number one thing we hear on this podcast is not only am I hit physically, and I feel like death, right? But my mental state is the worst it's ever been because of this. And I've never had mental health issues. I've never had depression. I've never had anxiety. And now I get hit with Lyme disease and oh boy, I'm in bad shape, right? So what would you recommend to those people listening to help them from an herbal standpoint with the psychological symptoms of Lyme disease?
2: I'm more of like the holistic herbalism school of thought. So I think that there's, it's kind of a multifaceted thing. And if you think that, You can just take an herb to cure any different thing and the herb alone is going to do it. There's a lot that goes into your mindset and what you keep telling yourself, even if you don't believe it. Um, It is, I do a ton of mindfulness work. Of course, I was raised Buddhist. My mom's been a Buddhist since she was 18. So I was raised already kind of able to deal with like the whole mindfulness thing. And I think that probably saved me a lot of misery in my life. Um, but I really, as far as like, actually, you know, like if I'm having one of those days where I'm just like, I don't want to deal with people. I don't want to do the things that I have to do today. Um, I use it's people say it all different kinds of ways. It's a Lang. It's Y L A N G Y L A N G. And it's like, I don't know how you could smell that and not be happy. <laughs> um, again, the hot chocolate is great. I know some people have, you know, severe caffeine sensitivity and even just drinking hot chocolate would be too much for them. Um, but if you can actually, uh, you know, deal with hot chocolate, then that's one of those huge things that it's just mostly the ritual around it, I think is important too. And to you know, take this, like, okay, I'm going to do this thing, like whatever it is, whatever kind of tea you want to drink or something like, You just find the things that make you happy. And it's going to be different for everybody. Um, There are things that they call euphorics, which would be like ylang-ylang. But, you know, just you go around and if you want to smell every single bottle of essential oil until you find one that really just elates you, (laughs) then that's what you have to do. Um, CBD, I find is really great for um, any kind of anxiety type stuff. I know marijuana itself for some people is like, totally the opposite but some people find it the other way and so it's just another one of those things that like it's so hard to answer a general question for everybody because we all have our own preferences or associations like some people really love vanilla and it reminds them of their grandma and you know makes them feel happy and full of love and whatever um so it's just really a matter of preference and really getting to know yourself and listening to your body and figuring out you know what's going to work for you? What makes you feel better? What makes you feel worse? And sometimes, you know, the things that we desire are not the best things for us. And, you know, that can be true for any number of things. Um, But it's just like, that really practicing that self-awareness and knowing that, you know, like, oh, I'm just so happy every time I eat watermelon. It's like, just eat some watermelon then, you know? Um, But making those choices to really consciously make your life better if you know that there's something that bothers you it's like I always say it's always the thing you're not doing that isn't working and so that's really like there's just no you know I've done everything and it's like well if you've done everything then there's something that you're missing too you know (laughs) it's like well you can't have done everything because no one's done everything I assure you (laughs) I've been doing this for over a decade and I have not done everything um so it's, and it's hard when you're listening to, you know, doing the exact same thing that somebody else did and well, it worked for them, but it won't work for me. And it's like, well, no, like I can guarantee you, I couldn't do exactly the same thing. Somebody else didn't have had the same results that I had. I just branched off on my own trail. I followed, followed my heart not to be corny. Um, and I just, you know, really looked inside myself. I meditate, I've meditated since I was a little kid. Um, and so the, those are things like, it's never too late to practice those things and to get into those patterns and like really the limiting belief that, you know, this is my life now I'm sick and I'm going to be sick forever. Like no matter how sick you are and how sick you feel, there are people who have stage four cancer and they can overcome that, but it's in the mindset and it's in the will to open yourself up, to feel better. Like when I went to my doctor that one time uh, recently, and he was like, no, you know, I don't see anything wrong with you. I, I wasn't your doctor in the past, so I can't speak for that. But, um, I think, you know, whatever happened to you is in the past now and you can move on. And I actually had to sit down and have a talk with myself and be like, okay, so I can be angry that another doctor isn't listening to me, or I can realize that my naturopath had told me that at the rate that, you know, they generally expect people to heal from chronic disease is one month for every year of illness. When you use holistic methods, if you're doing the right things, um, and working, like on the mindset as well as what you're consuming and all that stuff. It was like, all right, so it's been two years and this is what I've been working for, for much longer than that. Um, And so I can, you know, be happy and be grateful and consider that I'm moving forward and just go on with my life and thank my lucky stars that that's behind me. Or I can be angry at this doctor. I can refuse to accept healing and you know i can just let myself get lost in that cycle again of you know the disappointment and the anger and the grief and the whatever and know that that's going to hurt my health and that even if i have healed i'm going to go backwards and so i just was like no nope, i'm going to take the high road and i'm going to just be grateful that i'm at that place that i have worked so hard for since i was a teenager to be able to say that, yes, all of my labs are beautiful and I don't have any indication of illness anymore. And that really helped. Like, I think that that actually healed me a little bit more to be able to say that and to think about it that way and have it framed that way. Well, that was like a real, like true relief. I was actually really, really proud of myself for that because I've mostly done it on my own. I've, I was just going to
0: say that, Jen, I am so impressed with your empowerment and your ability. I mean, you just really embody the self healer, you know, Mm -hmm. and self taught yourself these amazing things about herbalism and just so dedicated to the study. And I know that your journey has had some dark periods, frustrating periods, Have there been some beautiful moments that have taught you about yourself and about the world that you wouldn't have gotten to this place without this journey?
2: Yeah, absolutely. I think it's also given me a lot of compassion for other people and to realize like, you don't know, (laughs) like a lot of times, like you can be like, what's wrong with people and like blame people for things. But then it's like to realize like, well, who was I? so many times that I went through these cycles of like I just didn't recognize and I just didn't understand that there was something even wrong let alone what it was or what I was doing or how my actions or my thoughts or whatever were impacting me like people really are just blinded to things sometimes and then you also consider like the staggering number of people who have Lyme especially where I live it is like super prevalent and again doctors don't really treat it so it's like they don't really acknowledge it as being much of a thing you're you absolutely up here um in Maine you really have to have the tick pull it off take it to the doctor and make them test it and they will give you prophylactic antibiotics but if you don't bring them a tick if you're like me and you pull off the tick and you flush it down the toilet then you know then you're totally like you're not going to get anything. They're going to tell you you're crazy. Right. It's sad. Like I actually know a lady who, um, her son was 12 years old when he got Lyme and, um, they said that he had herpes and he's like, mom, I've never even kissed a girl.
0: Oh my gosh. Yeah.
2: Yeah.
0: Yeah, I know. It's so, it's really so sad to hear those stories and I know that they're more common. Um, what, I mean, obviously you have these God-given talents. How are you serving the Lyme community today?
2: So I was doing a support group. Um, COVID was kind of slow on the uptake up here, <laughs> but lately um, within the last like three months or so, I haven't done my support group because I'm like, I just can't justify you know like as much as it's been spreading around lately it's like everybody has had it and it's like constantly every time I turn around somebody that I've been around is getting it and I'm like I can't give it to these people and so I um I would kind of like to start a zoom one I think just to be safe because I don't know you know going into winter I can't imagine it's going to get any better and I don't want to leave them abandoned but it's like so many times consecutively that I've been like are you serious? Like I can't turn around for 10 days without somebody telling me that they exposed me.
0: <laughs> right. Do you, <laughs> you know, see people right? though who have Lyme or autoimmune that you mm-hmm. treat with herbs?
2: I don't really market it a whole lot, but I will. Um I absolutely will. And part of the reason that I don't market it is like I said, you know, most of the time when you put yourself out there, people are like, "Well, why can't you just tell me what I mm-hmm. should do?" And it's like because I don't know you and I you, especially with something like Lyme, like to say I have Lyme, what do I do? Is like, I mean, you could have any symptom on earth. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like, there's not like a a very small set of symptoms that come with Lyme. Like you could have anything going on. And it's such a spectrum of severities and how long have you had it? And I mean, like, I've got questions. If you tell me you have Lyme and you want to know what to do. Mm -hmm. And I need you to answer those questions, honestly, so that I can help you. And so I do have people that will come to me. um, And what's funny is like talking to you, it's usually moms with kids. It's like adults don't want to do that work for themselves, but they will a hundred percent do it for their kids. So true. Yeah. They will put in and they will fight tooth and nail and they will do what they have to do to help their kids. But for someone to actually like make those changes in their own life, totally different story. They just, you know, it's, it's a lot of dedication and it's a lot of patience and confidence. Like I said, it took me two years to really get to a place where I was like, I think I'm going to be okay now. And people just don't have it in them to try that because, and I get it because it's so draining to be in that situation and you feel like nothing's working. It's like, no, it's going to be worse before it gets better. Right. So it really, to take on like an herbal healing path requires a different, I mean, and it's not even really a different type of de- dedication because antibiotics are every bit as miserable and really the complications, the potential for complications like C. diff and all that stuff that you get from taking antibiotics for so long can be really bad. <laughs> and so was like, you're almost better off just to try the herbs and go for herbs for two years. Um, a hundred percent that's I mean, I don't think I would have not done the antibiotics that I did, because like I said, that was like, that just made the way for me to actually have some clarity and be able to think about my situation in a different way. Um, that I just, I couldn't get past like the sound of infection eating my brain, I guess, for me to be able to actually think clearly about what was going on. What was I doing that was helping or not helping and even get to a place where I could sit down and read a book to learn the things that I learned that helped me and told me what I was doing wrong. Sure. Um, and so I think, I don't want to say that it's like something that you have to go through on your own, but it really is something that you have to be ready to dedicate yourself to and open your mind to, um, you know, working on your mindset, meditating, making sure you get enough sleep, um, kind of let the ego go because it's hard. <laughs> it's a hard journey.
0: <laughs> yeah. It's a very spiritual journey. And I know you're a spiritual, spiritual person. Um, and, um, you talked a little bit about that. I always ask people on my pat on my podcast, and I hope that I can ask this here too, Matt, but what are you most grateful for from this journey? If there is something.
2: I think, Oh, that's such a hard question because there's so many things, but I think really when it comes down to her, it, it's like the connection with nature, which is ironic because like I said earlier, like I do not want to be an archeologist anymore <laughs> like I when I was a kid because I do not want to be walking around in a field, but um, it is funny that, yeah, it's like it almost did connect me more to nature because I can look at plants and I can look at flowers and I just see them in such a different, almost more magical way because I know what power they have for like not just healing but um you know once you start studying herbalism you start reading about like the ancient uses of things and um the different spiritual significance that things had or the associations that they have with different planets or spirits or whatever and it's really cool it just kind of puts the world into a different perspective for you um like i just love seeing the bees and like i have snapdragons i think snapdragons are like one of the most if not the most underrated herb. Um, I think there are maybe like two studies that have been done on the herbal constituents of snapdragons, but they're edible. And that was another one of those things that I just, I drank it one time and it was, I made tea with it and it was magical. And it was just like the healing that I felt from just drinking. Like there was like a little cup of sun tea that I see, you know, I plucked off a couple of the flowers and stuck it in the water outside for a few hours. I came back and I drank it and I was just like, it just like satiated me in such a weird way that I was like, I've never experienced anything like this before. Um, but I had worked on a farm where, you know, the snapdragons would fall off the bouquets and we would set them in a little dish of water and kids would come and they'd pick them off and they would eat, oh, you can eat those flowers, yeah, you can eat those flowers. And I never had any clue like how magically healing they were until I actually, you know, just tried them myself because I was like, well, I know they're edible. And I started looking into them like from a chemistry perspective and they're actually studied for their DNA because they are really unique DNA. And so they actually have a lot of those like fatty acids and all those things that the triglycerides that go into the, um, you know, synthesis of your genetic makeup. And so I was like, well, we all need genetic restore, right. Especially after Lyme, which is totally messes you up in so many ways the epigenetics of it is atrocious. And so it made so much sense that drinking that was, you know, healing to me in that way. I think you,
0: oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead.
2: uh, Matt had asked earlier about anxiety and depression. Um, I don't want to say things I shouldn't say, but, um, uh, homeopathic platinum was something that I ended up buying out of, um, a homeopathic pharmacy in Britain. And it's literally a one drop dose. And it's like, they say, like if lithium doesn't work, try platinum and, So that was what I I totally skipped right over lithium and went to platinum. (laughs) Um, But it was so, I mean, it really helped. It really, I feel like that did it. So um, from, I think it's like every 60 days or something like that, your genetic makeup, kind of, you know, all of your genes kind of go through like a reprocessing or rebuilding. And so for 60 days, I did one drop a day of the platinum. And I felt like that really did a lot. Like I got to a point where I couldn't drive because my foot would shake so bad. And so I couldn't hold down the gas pedal and I couldn't hold down the brake pedal. And it was just like, well, <laughs> it was like we'll get there maybe. And so I had to stop driving, but um, I started doing that and it really helped. It was absolutely amazing for that. Um, and so those are just things that like, it can be like the most minute thing that makes the most difference. It's like you wouldn't think that one drop of something could have that kind of impact, but it does.
0: Yeah, I think it's it's so obvious to me that you went and studied exactly what you were meant to study. I mean, you yeah. are just a just an encyclopedia of information. I just learned so much from you just in this conversation.
2: <laughs> yeah, it's, I mean, Oh, and it was totally the tip of the iceberg too. So it was like, like, you know, you get home from work and you're like, what is wrong with me? And I would just sit there and like, next thing I was spending hours of me just, you know, looking into and studying what could it possibly be? And it's like, that's where, you know, where you get down like the slippery slope of Dr. Google, where it was like, I have everything. Like I have lymphoma, I have MS, I have like, (laughs) the list goes on and on and on. And I was like, it has to be Lyme because that's the only thing that makes sense. Is like, if you have everything, you have Lyme.
1: <laughs> well, Jim, we just want to thank you so much for sharing, you know, a decade's worth of learning. And now you are a, an herbalist. You are an expert to sharing all that with our community to learn and help them heal and expedite the healing journey. We can't thank you enough for that. And I just want to thank Liza as well for being an awesome, brilliant co-host. And for anybody who doesn't follow Liza, please go check out our website at veryhappystories.com check out her podcast. It's awesome. It's our favorite podcast as well out there. And she has a ton of social media and we just love following Liza. she's has a great influence in the community. So Liza and Jen, thank you so much today for joining the Tick Bootcamp podcast. Thank,
0: thank you. you. Thank you for listening to our Tick Bootcamp interview with our guest, Jen Sala. To our listeners, we have a call to action. First, if you'd like to learn more about Jen, please check out her Twitter at Nerdy. Second, if you've enjoyed this episode of the Tick Camp podcast, please share it with your friends on social media. Third, Tick Bootcamp has created a Tick Bite Blueprint that has been inspired by the information that has been shared with us by past podcast guests. We urge you to visit our podcast at tickbootcamp.com/bite to view the blueprint. Fourth, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts. Google Podcasts, or Spotify to get your automatic episode updates of our Tick Bootcamp podcast. Please take a minute to leave us an honest review on your podcast platform of choice. And finally, if you'd like to search our podcast library of over 300 episodes, subscribe to our email list or share feedback. Please share our website at tickbootcamp.com. Thank you as always for listening.